Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm going to start off this podcast is called Reflections After the Rain. It was written by Shanto Begay, and it's from his collections of poems called Navajo, Visions and Voices Across the Mesa. Uh, he also illustrated this book. Uh, Shanta Begay is an author and artist who's written and illustrated several stories from the Navajo and Anasazi traditions for both children and adults, and it includes such books as In My Desert, Strawberry Pop and Soda Crackers, and The Mud Pony, a traditional skeety pawnee tale. Reflections After the Rain by Shanto Begay Little tadpoles dart around my feet as I stand ankle-deep in water after a brief but hard summer rainstorm. The earth smells fresh and delicious. Fragrance of wet sand always washes away worries. Distant drifting clouds reflect in the pond like friendly puffy giants spreading happiness. In the distance, goat bells tinkle, letting us know they are near. My mother sits with her feet in the water in silent thoughts of thankfulness. The water holes are full once again. We do not have to take the flock a half-day's walk up to the windmill. Tadpoles tickle my ankles, and I laugh. On days of no rain, my mother tells me stories as we walk the herd up the mesa, stories of the land and stories of her childhood. They are always welcome. The dogs bark and bells rattle loudly. Something has startled the flock. High above, against the breaking clouds, a solitary raven appears. It is time to move the sheep and the goats back toward home. I squish my toes into the soft, muddy bottom of the pond, and the tadpoles scatter. The earth smells delicious. We are thankful for the rain. My guest today is Cindy Mitchell, librarian for the South Jordan Middle School in Utah and host of the book review blog, Kiss the Book. You can find Cindy's website at kissthebook.blogspot.com. Thank you for joining me today, Cindy. Oh, thanks for having me, Jody. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your blog, uh, Kiss the Book, uh, both what it is and how you got started with it? I've been a school librarian for 20 years now in the same school. And back in 2002 or so, I started thinking I need to keep a list of all the books that I read because I read a lot of them. So I started that online and some of my librarian friends found out about it. And I started doing presentations to different districts and they all really wanted to know what I had read and what I liked. And so they got more people coming to this impromptu list that I was keeping and I decided about 2006 that I wanted a totally different format because what I was doing was learning how to program computers and I didn't want to do that. So I found blogging. And so that's where I'd been this whole time is on Blogspot on Kiss the Book. I started out all by myself, except I had a couple of students that would help me. I had the student review group. We called it SLAB. It was our student library advisory board. But then over the years, I've gathered a couple of school librarians, some public librarians, some interested parents to help me. 
And even I have a, I teach a class in my district every year on new young adult literature. And sometimes the people that take that class also want to become reviewers. Honestly, I am looking for reviewers all the time because I've grown from just what I was reading every year, about 200 to 300 books, to now this last year we did 1,600 reviews. And we, we cover everything from pre-kindergarten, so board books, up through mostly high school level. Occasionally we get an adult level book, but not very often. And besides the book that we're going to be talking about today, are there other books you've come across recently that you'd also recommend? Oh, yes. So if you like fantasy, for example, Zach Clark and Nick Eolopoulos just came out with one last year called The Adventurer's Guild, which is, as far as I'm concerned, high-level fantasy, very fun, reminds me a lot of Terry Pratchett or even John Flanagan and its flavor. For those who like historical fiction, Melody Crowder wrote An Uninterrupted View of the Sky, which is a very poignant look at life in a prison in South America in the 1980s with children who are living in the prison. And then Alan Gratz, well, he's put out so many, but one of my favorites of the last year was Ban This Book, which is about a middle school where the PTA president decides that she wants to take certain books out of the library. So the kids start a locker library where they share the books with each other. And of course, someone could go on to your blog to get uh, other ideas for um, books as well to read. Oh, yes. As you said, uh, you've uh, been a middle school librarian for about 20 years. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the biggest misconception some people have about the role a librarian plays, particularly a school librarian? The funniest thing I get every day is that you must have a great time sitting in the library reading books, as if I have time to sit in my library and read books. If I'm doing my job right, I have absolutely no time to think about anything, because what I prefer to do is to be teaching classes if teachers will let me into their classrooms. I teach about using resources wisely, about fake news and how to spot it how to find the resources that you need on the internet, just anything that has to do with accessing information and using information, I'm supposed to be able to teach students how to do it. I, of course, love it when the teachers bring their students in to look for books or have me do book talks with them, but very little of my time in the library has anything to do with even reading a paragraph from a book. Now, you also do uh, presentations about using picture books, but at the secondary level. And I was particularly interested in that because when I used to teach, that's something I would do myself. And why don't you talk a little bit about how picture books, uh, those that were usually reserved for younger readers, that they can have a value at that secondary level. What I love about a picture book is that it takes a topic all the way down to its essence. Sometimes it's a wordless picture book. Sometimes it's a fairly wordy picture book. But when a student finishes reading that picture book, they have learned the core concepts of whatever that topic is. And it may be factual, like it may be American history, or it may be the life of a child in another country, or it may be empathy or behavior or manners 
whatever it is, that picture book, there's no extra words in a picture book to fill up space. And I love that the words connect with the visual so that teach the students aren't just reading or hearing the concept, they're actually seeing it presented it to them on the page. And it's not just historical fiction. I am bringing picture books to my math teacher, to my computer science teachers, of course, to the art teachers. Anybody that can get to listen to me, I will be throwing a picture book in their hands saying, wouldn't this make a great lesson for your students? Now, the book you chose as one of your favorite kids' books is the middle grade science fiction adventure, uh, The Accelerati Trilogy by Neil Schusterman and Eric Elfman. And this actually consists of three books, uh, Tesla's Attic, Edison's Alley, and Hawking's Hallway. And they were published respectively in 2015, 2016, and 2017 by Disney Hyperion. Uh, for readers who haven't had a chance to um, read these books yet, can you tell them a little uh, what they're about? So the main character in the book is Nick, and he's in the eighth grade. He and his father and his brother had just moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, from their home in Florida because their house burned down and their mother passed away in the fire. So now the only place they have left is Great Aunt Gerda's house in Colorado Springs. And when they get there, Nick thinks, oh, well, I'll live up in the attic. And when he goes up there, he is confronted with a deluge of odd objects. Well, it turns out that these objects were created by Nikola Tesla. But Nick and his friends aren't the only ones who find out that there's something special about the objects. There is a secret group called the Accelerati, and they are after the objects, too, not to do what Tesla wants them to do with it, but because they figure that there's a way to make money off of it. As you mentioned, the book starts off with the, Nick and his family dealing with this loss, uh, the death of their, uh, his mother in a fire. Uh, what is it about this event, uh, which Nick keeps coming back to again and again, it's referred to all, uh, throughout all three books, what is it about it that affects where the plot goes or the kind of decisions a Nick ends up making? Well, I think the loss of a parent, finding moment in a child's life, and especially if you have a belief in fantasy or magic or even science of the right degree, I think a child is always thinking, if I could only go back and change the past. And so I think in some way, you know, Nick has been defined by this tragedy, but he's always got that in the back of his mind, in his heart, that I would do this different if I could go back and save my mother. Now, as you might expect in a three-book trilogy, uh, you meet a lot of characters, and more than we'll have a chance to talk about today. And apart from uh, Nick, who we had a chance to talk about, did you have another favorite character that really stood out for you, one who you just really enjoyed reading more, more than any other? Probably Danny, Nick's little brother. Danny has such faith in Nick, that little brother to older brother relationship. And so many books picture that as an antagonistical relationship. But in this book, it's a relationship of love. 
they're drawn together by this tragedy and Danny has faith that Nick is always trying to do his best with whatever secrets it is that he's keeping. And so I think that he is full of a lot of hope. And so I really enjoyed meeting him. Now, in a book like this, where there's an adventure going on, uh, it's very important to have a good bad guy. Now, in this one, there's more than one, including the organization of the Accelerati itself. Uh, what do you think makes them memorable villains? And is there one that stands out in particular for you? Oh, I was hoping you would ask me about villains, because really the most memorable character and the character that I love to hate so much is Petula. Her name, her name is not Petula. It's Petula, in which, as far as I'm concerned, also brings up the word petulant, because she is an eighth grader who is drawn into this as part of the group, but she's a double agent and sometimes a triple agent and probably a quadruple agent. In fact, there's a great quote about Petula in Hawking's Hallway, and it says that Nick wondered if Petula really believed what she was telling him. It was hard to buy that she was trying to help anyone but herself, but that's what made her a perfect acceleratus. She was skilled at making herself believe that what was good for Petula was good for everyone else in the world. And that's Petula's worldview. If I think it's good, then everybody else should have to do it no matter what. Part of the plot is that Nick and his friends have to collect all these different objects before the Accelerati uh, get them. And they all have their own unique properties, such as there's a baseball mitt that can draw objects into it automatically, or a globe that can transport a person who's using it to anywhere in the world. And I'm wondering, uh, looking at all these different objects, is there one you think to yourself, I wouldn't mind having that one for a little while? Or you think, I think it's best that I leave these things alone? I'm afraid as a small child, I probably would have played with Vince's wet cell battery all the time. So now Vince, Vince is one of the main group. And in the first book, he dies. However, there is a wet cell battery that if you plug it, the electrodes into anything that used to be alive, it makes it come alive again. And there's kind of this gross in the in the second book, there's this gross little scene where first they try it on a dead goldfish and then they try it on a dead frog. But then they bring a chicken out of the refrigerator, one that's been plucked and is ready to cook for dinner. And every time I read that scene, it just gives me the willies, but in a great kind of way, because I kind of like that idea that you can plug this in and make something come alive. Of course, Vince has his own problems by being alive in this artificial way, but uh, I, that's kind of a fun concept to me. Well, like this uh, wet cell uh, battery that can make you come back to life, there's a lot of really fantastic and impossible things that happen in this book. But do you see a value in it as a tool for teaching science, perhaps, or even the history of scientific figures? What I love about these books, and probably more like the third or fourth time that I read them, is that Schusterman includes a whole lot of real science into his books. He mentions different scientific theories and different famous scientists. And since this book is about Tesla, he does a great job of playing up the rivalry between Tesla and Edison, which really was awful for Tesla as he was going through it. There's some 
good picture books out and a couple of good nonfiction books out for children that are written about this rivalry. And it just comes, I think, to full fruition in the pages of this book with Tesla being the one really who gets the the final say in the relationship. So I think that I, I don't know as much about Eric Elfman, which I feel kind of bad about, but I know that Neil Schusterman, when he writes this book, he does um, meticulous research. And so that you feel that everything that's in the book matters and then it all works together, which is very scientific. What I would really love is to have um, Neil deGrasse Tyson read this book or this series and what his take is on the probability of the science within it. As we mentioned, there are two authors in this series, uh, Neil Schusterman and Eric Elfman. Uh, but your big reason for picking this uh, when we first initially started talking about uh, uh, what you might talk about was your interest in uh, Neil Schusterman in particular and in trying to focus on one part of his many books. And I'm just wondering, uh, along with this book, what is his appeal as a writer uh, for you with this book and his other books as well? It seems like most of the books that you read nowadays are either plot driven or character driven. And then it's hard to find a book that it's a great mix of the two. But I think with Schusterman, his characters and his plots work together. You really feel for the characters. And so you like the passages when you learn more about them and what they're thinking. And then when you get to something that's happening, it's a happy surprise. And then you get drawn up into the whole action and angst of what's happening within the novel. A big theme, you might say, in this book is that there's so many ways how the past informs our present and then the frustration of not being able to go back and change things, even when that's an option. Uh, so is this book, you think, telling us that everything is set, there's not much we can do about it, or is it really telling us something else? I actually think that the book is telling us that we need to look at the past through many different lenses, because one of the big things that happens is they do manage to create a time of the ability to time travel and or even to see into the future. And what they find is that if they change their perspective, then they actually did have the ability to change what they thought happened in the past or what they thought was going to happen in the future, no matter what. Um, can I give you an example? Oh, absolutely. So Petula um, has taken a picture of what she thinks is the end of the world. But when it comes right down to it, one of the other characters brings something to her. They see this event that Petula took this picture of in a different perspective and realize that they helped stop the end of the world from coming. I don't want to give too much away, so hopefully that's not too obscure. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Now, are there, are there any particular passages uh, from the book uh, that you would like to share? So we were talking earlier about these wonderful devices that uh, Schusterman and Elfman came up with. If I remember right, there's a total of 32 of them, and I was able to find 29 of them and figure out what they do. 
my favorite, my absolute favorite, not one that I would want to own myself, but the one that the concept of it is exciting, is a clothes dryer. So this clothes dryer um, was in the house of a woman. And Vince is the one who has to go and retrieve the clothes dryer. He sneaks his way in through the doggy door. And when he goes through this doggy door, he sees what he thinks are mice. But he takes a closer look and he realizes that it's actually a whole bunch of tiny little cats. And so the woman takes him into the laundry room. And they see a full-size cat on top of the washing machine. And Vince says, no, don't, because the cat lady has grabbed the cat and put it in the sink and turned on the faucet. And the woman says, don't worry, I ain't going to hurt it. I just got to get it wet. It won't work unless it's wet. As cats don't like water, it did its best to squirm away, but she held it tight until its fur was soggy. Then she opened the door of an exceptionally old dryer. In you go, she said cheerfully. No, said Vince again. You're a nervous type, ain't you? She shut the dryer and turned it on. It rumbled and grumbled, but as Vince looked in the glass door, he could see that the drum wasn't turning. Something else was going on inside, though, because the cat was glowing. This is one of them, don't try this at home kind of things, the crazy lady said. She shut the machine off after 10 seconds, and when she opened the door, the cat was entirely dry and the size of a hamster. I got the thing at a garage sale. First time I used to dry my clothes, everything shrunk to doll size. The tiny cat jumped up onto her sweater and climbed to her shoulder to nestle with a host of others. It's a dream come true, she said. Finally, after all these years, I have enough cats. Oh, that is a great passage. That is a great passage. Well, what's really funny about that passage is that Later on, I mean, because you think about it, she's got hundreds of cats in this house at this point in time. So she has a plenty of cats. Later on in the same book, however, one of the other kids uses another device to start a tornado. And there's lightning going off. And so there's this tornado and there's this lightning. And then all of a sudden, one of the bolts of lightning strikes this house with all the cats and instantly it says each cat expanded to its original size the effect was not unlike a bag of microwave popcorn if every single kernel popped at exactly the same instant and if every single kernel was a cat windows blew out doors flew off their hinges and cats exploded upwards filling the street like a plague at that moment, however, a freestanding tornado came sashaying down that particular street at that particular moment. And of the 437 cats, 436 were drawn up into that tornado. So I just find that whole thing particularly funny. Well, Cindy, uh, thank you so much for um, introducing this trilogy to me. I hadn't had a chance to read it before. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Oh, you're welcome. That was way fun. You can find Cindy's website at kissthebook.blogspot.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which 
can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.